when I hear conversations about we need to fix this broken system, it's not broken. It is what it is. And so we have to understand how we can begin to deconstruct it and reimagine what it could be to support those who are most impacted, who are communities of color. That takes courage. Our families migrate here for a better life. And the message that we are told is that education is your way out of this tough life that we have. But we have to build an education system that gives every child access to opportunity and justice. An equitable education that delivers on that promise, that to me is what we absolutely have to follow. We have to smash the mental model completely. Like we have to just wipe it out. Because the way we think about it now, there's not enough money. What if we just get rid of the way in which we're doing it and think about how we rebuild it so that it's equitable, so that there's a student voice, so that it looks totally and completely different. And we build it with teachers and we build it with community. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Vital Spark Podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. Raise your hand if you're the kind of person who likes to listen to podcast episodes at faster than normal speeds. Now, keep that hand up and pledge to us and to yourself that you will listen to this particular dialogue at normal speed and stay mindful as you do. Seriously, reach into your podcast player right now and slow it down to one. Make time for this episode because it cuts to the heart of the promise to our communities for learning, growth, pathways to success, and well-being. Make time for this episode because it's not just about education. It's about something so surreptitiously American that people will challenge you for being un-American when you talk about it openly. Here's the thing. The education conversation is typically caught up in opposing views on just how broken it is and by what means we should fix it. This episode asks you to consider whether it is even broken at all and whether or not a fundamentally different examination is needed in order to create the changes required to ensure that every student experiences equitable opportunities to learn, grow, and thrive. And guess what? Even though we're talking about education, you're not going to hear a word about the upcoming ballot initiative. What you are going to hear are key insights and experiences from three passionate people who are dedicated to a brighter educational future for all. We'll get to that dialogue in just one moment, but before we do, remember that our schools are mostly not open for in-person instruction. If we want to reach that milestone, we need to be COVID smart every day. Stay at home as much as you possibly can. Wash up, mask up, maintain physical distancing, and keep a heads up for your fellow Arizonans. If we want the possibility of in-person instruction according to state guidelines, then our actions today make that difference. All right, let's get to it. It's time for a deeper discussion about education's role in community health and well-being. And it's time to do that by looking at root causes. Today, we're going to have an amazing conversation about education. We could do this for a long time, and we probably will do more than one of these episodes. But right now, we've got three great guests we want to introduce you to, starting with Sarah Gonzalez from Gonzalez Consulting. Sarah, how are you? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And also from All in Education, the Executive Director, Ms. Stephanie Parra. Stephanie, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. And at the heart of our conversation, right where it should be, our parent advocate for this conversation is Janine Bashir. Janine, how are you? Hi, John. Great to be here. Thank you so much for being here. Let's get started. Stephanie, when it comes to the way people think typically about education, what's being talked about that shouldn't be? 
and what isn't being talked about that should be. Now we're having a lot of conversations that I wish we had started decades ago around issues of equity. And that's really what we are focused on at All in Education is elevating and keeping the issue of the inequity in our school system at the forefront of all the conversations that we have when we talk about why certain groups of students are achieving at higher rates than other subgroups. In Arizona, 46% of the K-12 population is Latino. And as the fastest and youngest growing demographic block in the state, our achievement outcomes matter. And we are achieving at lower rates than peers. And this has been happening since the first report on this achievement gap. I like to call it an opportunity gap. The reports came out in 2001 when I was a high school senior. And here we are two decades later having the same conversation. And now the gap has gotten larger. And it is because communities of color and low-income families have access to less resources and don't have access to high-quality learning environments. And so we have to look at these major disparities in our education system and solve for them so that we get better and different outcomes. Janine, Stephanie just put it there on the table. Two key elements. One, community resources. The other, access to high-quality education. How do we think about those two resources in connection to each other, but also in terms of where do we need the most emphasis right now? Access. We have to look at access in different ways. One of the big things we need to look at is representation. And when we look at who's in the system, we talk about equity. We have to have teachers that look like the kids that they're serving. And if that's not possible, We have to be able to train the teachers that are in the system to really work with the children that they're working with and not come from a place of I'm going to come into the space and save these kids. And I think that's what happens a lot of times is that, oh, I'm going to come in and I'm going to save these poor children and not really looking at what they're doing from this equitable space and looking at the strengths of the community and looking at the strengths that these families bring to the table. But when we talk about equity and inclusion, we have to come from a strength-based model. And a lot of times we're not doing that. We have to see that the families that we're working with, even though they may be farm workers, even though they may be mids, they may be families that are unemployed or in the system or incarcerated or for whatever reason, not bringing in a high income, whether they're making a dollar a day or a million dollars a day, their strength that each family brings to the table. And teachers have to see that. They have to see that working in an equitable situation and seeing that family as an equal partner. You brought in a really important point, and that's bias. At its academic best, bias is this label that we put on folks. But in the moment, at the level of a classroom, It's about a complete misconnection. How have you seen that manifest in the classroom and what has it done in terms of a child's capacity to grow and learn? I have a personal experience. My son, African-American male, I look at the situation in second grade. We, in our home, we really embrace learning. We embrace education. And every day he kept coming home with detention after detention. There was a situation where he actually got his finger cut off. And so he was really learning how to rewrite. And in that, he was supposed to have an accommodation and be able to sit in front 
And this teacher just refused, even though she was told by the principal, told by everyone. She just refused. And I kept saying, why is there this detention? What is going on? And so I came in and I actually observed. So I had to be an active participant and a lot of families don't realize that. And then I went in and I just saw how she was treating him as a student. And this just continued after conversations, after going and having lots of meetings. And what ended up happening is my son's love for education dwindled because of the consistent attacks. Again, they tried to put a label on him. And we see this a lot with African-American boys with the consistent detentions and those detentions and lead to suspensions. And I refused to allow that to happen. And luckily I was able to navigate the system and call in different partners to the table. But think about those families that don't have those resources. Think about those families that don't know how to question the system. Even when they were trying to put my son in special ed, I was very much like, why does he need special ed? If I had not questioned that, I had to call a friend that this was her field. And she said, let them test him. Because if they test him, we'll understand what we need to do. My son does have epilepsy. And what we learned is that he wasn't ADHD as the teacher was trying to label him. We learned that it was his epilepsy showing up in a different way. And that, yeah, he needed some accommodations, but he wasn't special ed. And so he went from an A student to a DNF student. So his complete demeanor smashed, his complete desire to learn smashed. It took us an entire year and an entire different educator to even bring him back from that. It took me as a parent working with him and trying to bring him back through that. And so what happens to the parent that doesn't do that? So when we talk about that implicit bias and what that does, it took us having to almost get an attorney and threaten her and threatening to school the school district for her to even consider changing it. And actually we ended up having to take her out of the classroom. And that was the principal's decision. So what happens to the family that doesn't have a friend that works in special ed to say, hey, go ahead and let them do the assessment and then we'll make some decisions from there? What happens to the principal that just wants to put the label? As a result of my actions, we now have a healthy learner and student that's graduating this year from the IB program. But again, that advocacy that I've had to do for him every year, we have to partner as parents, can't stress enough how you have to partner with your child's educational person. And you have to realize you are the expert on your child. Your child's not always right. That's not what I'm saying. But you have to be able to work with your child's teachers. One of the things that we learned in April and May, to Janine's point, is there's a gap in not just a bias towards disproportionate discipline, but there's a major gap in communication with families. And in the Latino community, the language barrier creates even larger disparities. So I spoke to families in mid-May on a phone bank that we held to hear about their experience in schools. Parents of students of English learners, students with special needs, in tears, frustrated, nobody from their school would call them back. They hadn't heard from anyone since mid-March. And so this breakdown in communication and systems thinking that sending a mass email communication in English is sufficient, it's not sufficient. And to Janine's point, 
parents have to realize that they have to be advocates for their kids. At All in Education, for us, it's really important to develop parents as advocates so that they can be informed and be involved in their child's education and question. Often, our community is trusting of institutions sometimes to a fault. We send our kids off to school and the school knows best. So, you know, who am I to question the school system? And we do have to ask questions and get involved because parents do know their kids best. Sarah, what Janine is telling as a personal story and what Stephanie's coming at from the numbers perspective, they point to this cycle that gets really vicious very quickly. Some people even describe it as a pipeline. How has our education system devolved to a point where it's actually working against our youth? We have to recognize the system is working exactly how it was intended to work. So it's not broken. It's working exactly the way it was intended to work. And it was not meant for communities of color to prosper within it. So we have to recognize that. We have to understand the history of this system. It was not built by us and it was not made for us to succeed in it. So when I hear conversations about we need to fix this broken system, it's not broken. It is what it is. And so we have to understand how we can begin to deconstruct it and reimagine what it could be to support those who are most impacted, who are communities of color. That takes courage. We have to make decisions that are mindful of others, specifically those who are being othered within our system. That's a difficult thing to do because that also means that we have to give up some of our power to do that. We have to give up our power to those who have been marginalized for centuries, historically. And so until we do that, this system will continue to perpetuate the outcomes that we see today. All three of you have taken different angles on the experience of what our education produces, as opposed to what we need it to produce. Where is the appropriate place to start Janine alluded to this. We believe that representation absolutely matters. We want to aggressively diversify the teaching workforce, get more people of color into the teaching profession. If you think about how people move up in roles in the teaching profession, it starts in the classroom. It starts as paraprofessionals and educators. And so if you want more diversity at principalships and assistant principals and superintendents, we have to work aggressively to get more representation in the classroom. The people who are making decisions on behalf of all students have to look like us. And when you look at Arizona, our education boards, the State Board of Education, the Board of Regents, and the State Charter Board, less than 10% of the seats are represented by Latinos. And so for us, like it is important to get more Latino representation. I don't know that there is any Black representation on the state boards of education at all, which is alarming as well. And Native communities also. All of our kids need representation. And our theory of change is that getting individuals from the communities that are most impacted by inequity to be the ones that are making decisions on behalf of all students, either at the state level, at the local governing board level, when you have lived experience and our perspective in the room, decisions, I think, will produce better outcomes for students. Janine, same question to you. I think it goes a step further. You have to plant the seed where the seeds to me starts with the community. 
coming from my Girl Scout experience, you have to also have that youth-led voice. Because I think if the youth are part of the decision-making in their education, there's more buy-in. They have a lot of the solutions that we don't even think about as adults. And so, you know, how do we develop when we talk about developing that next set of workforce and making sure that it looks like the community, you plant those seeds from the community and you grow that. Starting at the community level and then bringing that on up, I do agree with everything that Stephanie said, that you have to have people from the community that are serving the community. And then it also has to, not just the people that are serving, but the leadership. Leadership is key because I think a lot of times we get stuck down at the teachers. Oh, we have a couple of teachers that look like the kids, but really, unless that goes all the way up through the executive level and to the people that are making the decisions on our school boards, all our school boards should have a youth leader I sit on the City of Phoenix Youth Leadership Commission and recently have been doing some work with the DCS Youth Council. These are a group of wonderful young people that bring issues to and like, hey, this is kind of what we're thinking of doing. What do you think? And they provide always things that, hey, I didn't even think about that. That's absolutely brilliant. So why don't we have school boards have a youth position? Making sure that it's not just our A students that are in that position, but our students that are average to everyday Joes and that truly represent represent the communities that they live in. Sarah? Well, I definitely want to echo what Stephanie and Janine have said. But in addition to that, I think we need to seriously look at our policies and we need to eliminate policies that create barriers for communities of color. Prop 203 is a great example of of a policy that that should be repealed. Another one is around funding. We have inequitable funding that's occurring. You have schools that are primarily serving white communities are getting $10,000 per child more compared to schools that are serving communities of color. That's inequitable and it limits the access to supports and resources needed for students to thrive. And so looking at those types of policies that are continuing to create the outcomes that we're seeing. We have really incomplete data within our state. We don't really have a warehouse or a clearinghouse for data. And so there's a lot of piecemealing and it's, it's just a very fragmented system. And so we're not able to really get a true picture of what the inequity is, what the challenges are that we need to start grappling with. We need to be lifting the story of minority and low-income students. We really need to understand their experiences within this very harmful system that we need to seriously start shifting. Sarah. You have a very close personal experience with this in the Isaac School District. Take us back a number of years now to where you were at Isaac and take us through the tremendous story that has transpired within the Isaac School District. I was invited by the Isaac Elementary School District about five years ago to support them in addressing their health and social service needs of that particular community. Isaac neighborhood is about 6.8 square miles. It's a very small neighborhood within the larger community of Maryville. And it has a lot of challenges. And I don't like to talk about the statistics of those challenges because yes, there's some challenges, but that community has so many assets. And because of the assets of that community, what came out of that neighborhood would never have happened. 
So with that particular initiative, I was invited to support them. And there was an initial idea from the superintendent around establishing a family resource center that could be a hub of resources for that neighborhood. It's so important that we as agencies and individuals that are working with community are intentional about how we work with community. We, we have to walk in humbly and we need to be invited in. We can't just come into communities and say, I'm going to fix you and this is what you got to do. We have to be invited in because they might not need us or want us there. (laughs) So the first thing was getting that invitation and then really assessing whether or not the community wanted this Family Resource Center as a solution. There was a lot of deep conversations with community members of all of the schools within that school district and then outside of the school district. And what I heard unanimously that that was something that they wanted for their neighborhood. And so over the scope of a year, I partnered with the community, parents, students, business owners, school staff, school administration, and we together created the strategic plan to the heart of Isaac. The community led the entire initiative because they are the ones that are going to fix the problems. They are the ones that have the solutions to all of the challenges that we are seeking to address. And we have to know that. We have to recognize that and we have to trust that they have the solution to the problems and that it's not our job to fix it. Our job is to be there as a support to them as how they define us to be a support. And so they were very clear about my role in the project. I pretty much provided my support and how they defined it. And there was a house that was donated by a member of the community to the Isaac School District, and it was being kept as a storage facility. It was there for a number of years, I would say 20 plus years. And there was a huge flood in the house and it was completely a mess. And I remember walking in with the community and I was like, oh gosh, what did I get myself into? (laughs) Because it was like with every project, and especially when you're working with school district, there isn't any money for anything. We don't have a budget. That's always the first thing. We don't have a budget. Do it without a budget. I clearly remember when we walked in the house, the community members that were there with me, they just lit up. They absolutely lit up because they didn't have a place for themselves. There was nowhere else in that community for them to go. And they saw it as their opportunity to create something, imagine something beautiful to serve them. That energy is what drove the entire initiative. The neighborhood didn't see it. They seized it. Yes, they saw it and they seized it. And every weekend, community members, along with business owners and all the other partners, they would work on the house. All of their sweat equity combined working on the house initially When we would talk about it to potential funders and partners, they all said, I remember, you guys are crazy. This ain't going to happen. You kidding me? That's, That's a lost cause. We would hear that so much, but you know, the community, it was their space and they kept working on it within their own resources, within their own gifts. And slowly but surely it started to come alive. Then you could see the narrative changing where partners were noticing this community's investment and hard work within this project. And then they just wanted to be a part of it. They wanted to help it. 
You could see different people giving and supporting in different ways. And then finally, we wrote a proposal to the International Association of Interior Design. And we told the story about what was happening and what the need we were seeking to address. And they came out and did a visit. And it was during the time when the families were working on the house and they were just so blown away. They had never seen a community so invested and engaged in a project And out of a pool of applicants, they picked the Heart of Isaac to support and they got their very best contractor, their very best designers and invested over $500,000 and literally did an extreme makeover on the house. Because of that work, the neighborhood and the community was able to obtain an operating license from the city of Phoenix to be able to open and function as a resource center. It was amazing. The entire process, even working with the interior designers, it was very much led by the community and they loved working with the community in that way. The community members took inspiration from the Frida Kahlo house. And so the house, the heart of Isaac is a bright blue They were very intentional about that because they wanted to make sure that the community could see it. It would be visible to them and people would know where to go out of the entire process. The the real success was really not the heart of Isaac. There was a lot of organizations that wanted to duplicate that. They wanted to duplicate a heart of Isaac in every community. And we really had to ask them, well, does every community need a heart of Isaac? Do communities even want you there? So there was these questions that we had to really ask people. Again, the biggest success, I think, in that story was that the community recognized the power of their voice. They recognized they can do anything with or without resources. I mean, they already were. Before you and anybody else goes out to support communities, they're already doing the work. We're coming in late to the game. Our communities are figuring out some of the most pressing challenges in our state with little to no support or resources. And we're coming in late to the game and we have so much to learn from them. They can teach us so much. We have to walk into communities humbly because we should be learning from them. That house, that Heart of Isaac, through that work, there was partners that continue to support that. Heart of Isaac now has staff. It's fully integrated within the Isaac School District. It has become the hub of not just the Isaac School District, but the larger Maryvale community. There's a waiting list for partners because they want to be there where the community is. And so the community still very much leads everything that is happening in that house. So every month they are meeting with staff and they are driving the programs and initiatives that are coming out of that house. And it's absolutely sustainable if anything were to happen to funding or to the school district and they weren't able to continue to support in the way that they do. I am 110% confident that the community will sustain it because it's their house. It belongs to them. And that's the way it should be. We should be working our way out of jobs and we should move out of the way when we're being asked to and when we're not needed and supporting in the way that the community is telling us to. Stephanie, when you think back on the story that Sarah's just told and you think about your points that you were making earlier about representation and voice and engagement, 
Is there anything that should not have already hit somebody over the head that you want to share about that story and about the story of making sure that we are centering community? Absolutely. So, you know, when I started in this role at All In Ed, April 1st was my first day. So two weeks after schools closed in the midst of the pandemic really hitting Arizona, crazy time to start a new job and crazy time to start a new organization. But here we are. So folks were asking, what does the Latino community need? What can we do? And we said, you know, before making assumptions about what the community needs, we need to listen to the community first. And so we launched All In for Arizona's Future, which was a four and a half week campaign to outreach to the community. We held 13 conversations on five different media platforms, spoke to folks on Spanish radio, Spanish television, on Zoom, Facebook Live, and we reached parents and educators in the Latino community. And that produced our recommendations about family engagement and increasing that connection and and making sure that families are involved, diversifying the profession, addressing issues of equity. Our recommendations are grounded in listening to the community first. And that is the lesson that leaders need. If they take away anything, it has to be that you cannot make assumptions and paint with broad brushes for any community without going into the community to listen to what their greatest needs are and what their challenges are and how you can help. In education, we're constantly chasing silver bullets and here's a new program, this will solve everything. And here's this, what is the next thing that you're gonna try to sell me on? And in all of that, superintendents and district leadership, board members and teachers, et cetera, everyone feels this push-pull tug of, oh, now we're doing this. So that didn't work. So five months later, we're going to try this. And then we're doing this. And then it doesn't get results. And so leaning into what Sarah said about really listening to the community, letting the community and students, Janine brought this up, like, They have the solutions. Lean into them. Let them guide our work because there is incredible talent in our community. And I think if we start seeing our communities as talents that need to be tapped as resources rather than problems that need to be solved, we will make huge headway. Janine, how much different would your experience have been if there could have been a student advisory board or if there could have been a cohort of active parents, or even better, if the education system itself was doing that work instead of you? I think it would have been very different. I always laugh. One of my jokes is when I met the teachers at the beginning of the school year, because of course, rumors, she's going to be in our class this year, but that was fine with me. Either I could be your greatest advocate or I could be your worst enemy. And I think as parents, we have to support our teachers. Our teachers have a lot on them. They're expected to be counselor, they're expected to teach, they're expected to do all these things. One of the things that we didn't talk about that I meant to mention earlier, we need to also increase funding for our counselors. For every one counselor, there's about 1,500 students. If we talk about a holistic approach to our school system, that's an area that we have to do better in. And so while we advocate for our students with our teachers, they're under a tremendous amount of stress. So we have to not only advocate for them, but also support them. And anybody will tell you, as much as I advocated for my son, I was also there supporting our teachers in making sure that they had what they needed. And it's a give and take. And so that's where I talk about being an educational partner. And so every year I would start the year off with, hi, my name is Janine Bashir. 
I can be your biggest advocate or I can be your biggest adversary. So you get to make that choice, how that looks. But I'm here as your partner. And I really want to make this a win-win for both my son and for you. We also laugh because the director of special ed would always say, Janine, I wish you could teach all parents how to do this. She was just so impressed of how I was able to gather, connect with other advocates to come with me to these meetings. I think it's something we have to start teaching our other parents on how, how to do this because it really does make a difference. I think about our refugee communities where English is the second language. I think about our Latina community or Latinx communities or Hispanic communities, what the teacher says. So it's, it's very important we figure out how to do this in such a way and also increase parent involvement. Like we got to bring that old school back. Like it does take a village and how we do that. I'm not sure, but parents have a lot on them too. So like, what's the give and take that makes it work for everyone? Yeah. On the one hand, it probably felt pretty good when he said, boy, I wish there were more of you. But on the other hand, you have a day job, you have other things to do. And why is it that the system doesn't already function in a way that supports your child is a big question. Sarah already said it. The system is not designed to do that. I would agree, but At the end of the day, no one's going to help your child the way you are. And that's, again, where you have to see yourself as the expert. We have to change our mental model. If you see yourself as knowing your child the best, I think it even starts at birth. So I'm also a community doula. And so even, you know, when we talk about health and wellness, again, the same concept applies, not trying to take this away from education, even in how we partner with our doctors and how we have that voice and choice in that. So it applies in every aspect of your child. You have to see yourself as a partner and have that voice in not just your child's education, but in everything for your child. Okay, we're going to go around in a little bit of a lightning fashion. Each of you get a shot at this question. And a couple more. We are looking at the potential for a broader discussion on education in the context of overall community vibrancy. When people think about healthy communities and they think about vibrant communities, they're very quick to think about education. But how should they think about education to really make a difference? Stephanie, I'll start with you. One thing that I was always taught growing up is education's my way out of poverty. My father was a farm worker. I'm the daughter of two Mexican immigrants. And I think that's the story of a lot of Latinos in Arizona. Our families migrate here for a better life. And the message that we are told is that education is your way out of this tough life that we have. But we have to build an education system that gives every child access to opportunity and justice. An equitable education that delivers on that promise, that to me is what we absolutely have to focus on. Janine, same question to you. Think about how people tend to default on education. These default ideas tend not to go deep enough to actually address the key root issues. I think we have to smash the mental model completely. Like we have to just wipe it out because the way we think about it now, there's not enough money. What if we just get rid of the way in which we're doing it and think about how we rebuild it so that it's equitable? so that there's a student voice, so that it looks totally and completely different. And we build it with teachers and we build it with community. The way in which we're doing it now, it doesn't make much sense and it's stressing everyone out. So what can we do to smash those mental models of how it looks now? Sarah, what would you say? The way that we rethink 
education is by centering those that are most impacted and really shifting the system so that those that are most impacted, which are communities of color, are going to benefit. If you create the conditions for those that are the most marginalized, then everyone else will prosper from those benefits. So if you serve the most needy and you create the conditions for them to thrive, then a ripple effect, everybody will also thrive. So we have to look at this system and understand the experiences of communities of color within this very harmful system and really, really create the conditions for those marginalized communities to prosper. As a benefact, everybody else will also. And in order to do that, we have to look at it through a racial equity and inclusion lens. Next question. We've talked about the system being broken. We've talked about a number of causes for why. What would be the top or top three priorities that you would center in making education more effective and more supportive of the communities that you're working with? Sarah? It's really one thing. It's going to take us to look at systemic racism. That's really it. We have to be honest with ourselves and we need to address systemic racism within the education system. Once we do that, then we can reimagine a new education system where all students, especially those that are marginalized, will thrive. That's, that's how you do it. We have to do a self-reflection. We have to assess our current system and we have to eliminate systemic racism at all levels of the system. Stephanie? I agree. I think we have a lot of learning to do from our history. History often repeats itself because we refuse to learn the true history of our schools. When looking back, Phoenix Union was a very segregated system. We had a school for colored students. We had Latino students walk out of our schools in the 50s. And so it takes leadership, learning about the history of your school system, and being intentional in dismantling the oppression our institutions are built on. Everything from a school district and a school system to our housing policies and how we house community and how we offer resources and supports, uh, social service supports to low-income communities of color. It takes us learning about how those policies were designed We can argue whether or not it was intentional or unintentional, but there are certainly consequences based off of decisions that have been made in our history. And in Arizona, it should be of no surprise to anyone that we have a very strong history of being anti-immigrant, anti-Latino. We were known for being a very racist state against immigrants and Latinos. It is going to take us acknowledging that we have a history and working aggressively to do better for the community. I don't want to make specific recommendations on policy or practice or programs, because for me, the lesson I want leaders to take away is that it takes listening to community first. So let's come up with those policies, those practices, those programs together and do it in partnership so that we can get better outcomes and have more effective communication with our community. That is when you are intentional about disrupting and dismantling a system 
that was not meant for us to thrive in. Those of us that have succeeded have done it, you know, <laughs> with a foot on our necks, <laughs> you know, like with, with the system holding us down, we have found ways to navigate and succeed. We have to ensure that all of our communities are able to thrive. So it's going to take folks being willing to give up some power. That's the challenge. Because who sits on business corporate boards? Who sits on nonprofit boards? Who sits on a lot of influential boards? Typically doesn't look like me or Sarah or Janine. So it's going to take people being willing to give up power and create space for our voices to be in the room as well. Janine, the data doesn't lie in terms of how the education system works. So it seems as though we have a consensus on systemic racism. How do you take something that's been around for 400 years and try to work to dismantle it? It takes brave inter- individuals. I think a lot of what we're seeing right now, the disruption on both sides of the fence, no matter where you stand, you know, people are afraid. You want to take what I've had. You want to take my privilege. What does that mean for me? People are afraid that people are going to do to them what others have been doing to others for a century. And so that's why you see people taking certain stances. So when you operate in fear, that makes people act a certain way. How we do it, I think it starts with at least conversations. I don't have the answer to how, but I know these types of conversations and giving people safe spaces. I don't think it's about playing a blame game because I think when we start blaming folk and the defenses go up, I think it's like, this is the historical fact and this is how things have happened. So it's really about understanding the history and everybody has to be able to own it and not get defensive. It has to start with conversations like this and then develop solutions together as to how do we move forward together. But you have to understand the historical piece of it, no matter how painful it might be to stand in the fire, you have to go through the fire because it's going to be hot, but you have to have the courage to walk through it. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Stephanie. And thank you, Janine. Education truly stands at the nexus of community health and well-being which is why your work, your passion, your experience, and your insights are so valued. Folks, there's much work to be done when it comes to education, but we all knew that before this episode started. The real gift of these three voices is the opportunity to fundamentally approach education from a different angle, more honestly, more vulnerably, and ultimately, more generatively. As Janine said so clearly, there isn't enough money the way we're doing things now, and everybody is just more stressed. So why not smash the current mold and rethink? That is a great question that we all need to sit with, reflect on, and ultimately act upon, sooner rather than later. Speaking of actions, we remind you again to stay COVID smart. Get your flu shot now, because the combined effect of the flu and COVID could be significant. Wash up, mask up, physically distance whenever you can, and keep a heads up for each other out there. Double points for masking up, by the way. It can help prevent COVID and the flu from spreading. Remember, We're in a marathon, not a sprint. Being in this together, we'll get out of this together. Our COVID-19 roundtable returns next week, and who knows who'll be sitting around the table this time. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes. Urgently, we ask you to listen to and share episode number 41, our Census 2020 update. We only have a precious few weeks before the census count deadline of September 30th, and Arizona simply cannot afford to be undercounted like it was in 2010. One or two new congressional seats depend on an accurate count, 
as do billions of federal dollars over the coming decade. Check in with friends, family, and acquaintances. Get everyone living in Arizona counted. Beyond that, we've got a terrific and insightful LGBTQ communities conversation that you've got to hear if you haven't already. And as one of our hottest summers continues, we've got a great two-part series on heat and climate change. Plus, episodes on food, affordable housing, first responders, and the art and practice of storytelling. In other words, The Vitalist Spark has got you covered with great guests, insightful content, and probably one or two bad jokes. There's so much more to explore related to community health and well-being among our 45 episodes so far, including guests from across the state and national experts, too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or, listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Or, you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon. <laughs>